0: You are listening to AI Ready Healthcare. I'm Anirban Mukhopadhyay, your host from Darmstadt, Germany. The purpose of AI Ready Healthcare is to connect the advanced technological knowledge of Mekai society to different stakeholders, such as clinicians, industry personnel, regulatory personnel, to name a few. You can expect Deep meaningful conversations about bringing AI into the real clinical routine. Opinion belongs to whoever said it. Anything said here is not medical advice. Together let's make healthcare AI ready. There are places that seem to expect us, to take us in like pilgrims from the way ahead, to tell us suddenly and without fanfare of a new beginning, made out of nothing but the way we got here, as if the hard road of difficulty and despair and minor triumph that brought us here could make sense simply by the nature of a particular geographic welcome. Like this par of olive groves overlooking the valley pace, its upright stones cradled on the ridge by a surrounding hollow, so that the tomb feels like two hands cupped together holding the flow of remembrance, so that we drink the never-ending spring, hardly knowing what we drink, and look out at the quiet groves, not knowing what we see, taking the cup from our ancestors as they took it from their ancestors and their ancestors before them. Each generation for grieving and then respecting, forgetting and then remembering again how the chain of life is forged, how what we love and leave behind becomes more real to others because we hold it, knowing how it flows away. And in a place like this, each of us can recall the clear memory of a young son or growing daughter or a good friend let go into the world. You were listening to a few verses of Etruscantum by David White. In this week's episode of AI Ready Healthcare, I talked with Ilkar haji Hali Hulu who talked about his new startup and what they are doing is about bringing access to high quality ultrasound with AI assistance. So without further ado, let's talk to Ilkar. Welcome to the fourth season of the podcast, I Ready Healthcare. Um, this is a cold January afternoon here in Darmstadt, Germany. It's a bit snowing as well outside, uh, but it's not really very pretty. So it's, it's a very typical cloudy German weather. But I'm really, really uh, looking forward to a wonderful discussion with our guest today, Ilkar Haji Haliolu. Uh, I hope I pronounced the last name correctly, but anyway, we are not going to stick to the last name. (laughs) I will call Ilkar as Ilkar for the sake of simplicity. (laughs) Uh, Ilkar is the co-founder and CTO of Onstic, and he is also a professor was, I think, until 21, he was in Rutgers, and I just heard from him right now that he is back to British Columbia, to Vancouver, Um, and then, basically, in terms of the research, his research revolves around bringing AI to computer-assisted surgery, uh, with many of the nuances that I'm sure we will uh, uh, talk about during the uh, engaging conversation for today. Um, So, welcome to the podcast, Hilker.
1: Hi, Andrew Brand. Thanks you. Thank you for having me. And I'm very happy to be here. I'm listening to all of your podcasts as soon as I have time. And then those are all amazing. And I like the fact that it's a podcast, so I don't have to stare at the screen so I can listen to it on the road. So I'm happy to be here.
0: Yeah, it's basically called found time, right? You can do it while you are doing something else. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we are also really happy to have you here. So I guess, Ilkar, the first question always is about the becoming, how you mm-hmm. have become, who the researcher you currently are. So maybe you mm-hmm. can walk us through.
1: Sure. I mean, I had, when I finished, I took my undergrad and master's in, in Istanbul, Turkey. So I'm from Turkey originally, Istanbul Technical University. And then when I finished my undergrad, my aim was like, okay, I'm going to get a job at the industry and then just that's going to be it. But then the recession happened in Turkey, so I can find a job applied for master's studies, I did my master's, and then towards the end of my master's, we had this Canadian industry people visiting our university, and then we started a project with them. So that's how I basically applied for PhD studies in, in Canada. So I was accepted to University of British Columbia in Vancouver. So that's where I did my PhD. And my research topic was about incorporating ultrasound into uh, orthopedic procedures, computer orthopedic surgery procedures. And then following that, I did like a postdoctoral fellowship at the Vancouver General Hospital. And I was nearing my end of my postdoctoral fellowship because you cannot do that forever. So I was like on my third year. So I need to find something. So I applied. I saw this position opening at Rutgers University. And then I ended up the, the topic, research topics, one of them fit me. So Because finding like a job in academia, the way I see it is like, it's very, like you have to have the necessary background. And you also have that like, be lucky a little bit so that your research fits into what they're looking for. So it fit what I was looking for. I went to the interview and then I was offered a position there. So moved from West coast of Canada to East coast of, of the U S to New Jersey. And it was a, it was a big change because the life pace was faster on the East coast of U S especially. But I was, I had very, very beautiful seven years over there. And then during towards the end of it, We've, uh, I started a uh, co-founder at with my brother. And around the same time as well, recently I joined back my alma mater, University of British Columbia, and they had a position which is like AI translational medicine under Faculty of Medicine, Department of Radiology, and Department of Medicine. Yeah, so that's, that's me. And then uh, and a little funny fact is also not a lot of people know this, but I, I played professional basketball in Turkey Towards the end of my high school years before I before I entered university. But I wasn't like a national team level player, so I stuck with academia.
0: Wow, that's really wonderful. This is yeah. actually very interesting that we finally have a sportsman from presenting me Kai.
1: Used to be, used to be, not anywhere. <laughs>
0: Like if you did it once in the in the Mikai level of sportsmanship, we take it for life. Right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm a pro for Mikai.
0: <laughs> yeah, but that's really a wonderful fact. I mean, I guess I have another fun fact to add because you mentioned Istanbul Technical University. So the first podcast episode that we ever recorded for Ready healthcare is with my friend Ilkay Oksuz. Yeah, and I know him. He, he is now a professor in Istanbul Technical University, yeah. where he studied. So yeah, a small world.
1: Exactly, exactly. Yeah.
0: So, I guess I have a quick follow-up question because you mentioned already that during your PhD you focused on computer-assisted surgery. Mm-hmm. So, can you tell us a little bit of why this was something that, let's say, grabbed your interest? Why you chose computer-assisted surgery over something?
1: Sure. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, so when I joined UBC, and then there were initial project I started was about osteoarthritis, and especially using MRI scans. And then I was talking with a lot of people. There was like a very senior Turkish prof in the mechanical engineering department, Yusuf Altintas. So I was just talking to him what else to do, and then he. You mentioned uh, Rob Rowling, which is who was also one of my co-supervisors. And uh, he was one of the pioneers in ultrasound imaging. And then I had this, my other co-supervisor was from mechanical engineering. And he was, he's very interested in orthopedic surgery procedures. And then my main supervisor, Rafif Abu Garbi, is very interested in image analysis. So I kind of brought them together. Tony had the idea of, oh, I want to use ultrasound will be a great tool to use in orthopedic procedures to decrease the radiation and then provide some guidance. Rob was the expert in ultrasound imaging, and then Rafif was guiding me through the image analysis section. So that kind of brought all of them together, which was like, an, I guess I was lucky in that sense. But the drawback of that is like writing a manuscript takes a lot of time because you have to revise it three times <laughs> or sometimes more. So the other thing that kind of like got my interest in that project, we started meeting with the clinicians, right? So, and then we, we talked to them and I had this like grandiose ideas that we can do. But then when you talk to them, it's just like, no, we don't need that. Come to the surgery with me. So I attended a lot of surgeries at the Vancouver General Hospital, orthopedic surgeries. And that kind of like basically got my interest in all of that. So I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. I love being at the surgery room, seeing what the problems are. And how we can, what we can do, even if it's something little that can help them, it's basically wonderful. So that kind of like, basically, I was very, what do you call it, like obsessed with the project. And towards the end of it, we did some clinical studies. We collected ultrasound scans from patients who had fracture, because the main idea was imaging fractures with ultrasound. So I get to talk to them and listen to their stories, why they were there, what kind of fractures they had. Some of them had like accidents. Some of them basically party too much and then fell down. (laughs) But it was, I mean, and all of them were very helpful. That's the other thing as well. Like when you work, talk to the patients, they want to basically get back to you so that you can improve the research and then help whoever is going to be in their seat next time, right? So when they can, and that that was the wonderful thing about as well, healthcare research. I mean, at least from my experience, a lot of patients are very helpful to be part of a clinical study, Being inside the the clinical environment, working with these wonderful clinicians, surgeons, I think that's another thing that drives my motivation in in being still involved in healthcare aspects now.
0: Yeah, that's really a great point you are making. I mean, if I sort of look back at the episodes that we recorded with other researchers from Mikai at different level of their career, but what is one common theme is that the more Successful the researchers are you see that they had a lot more in contact with the clinicians with the patients not just programming the neural networks uh, from their computer and that really is something that drives their let's say life's goal and research focus. But you also, of course, mentioned ultrasound, right? And then ultrasound is a wonderful, wonderful way of doing imaging because it's cheap, it's radiation free, it's so easy, so portable. And then I guess you now have a company, you mentioned Ponstech, where you are a co founded and you are a CTO. So I'm guessing you are still focusing on ultrasound in PonStech. Tech. Yep. Can you tell yep. us a little yep. bit about that? Sure.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So PonsTech is a company that focuses on uh, point-of-care ultrasound with, with AI guidance. So we are not developing the ultrasound transducer, but we're developing more the AI that basically makes the use of ultrasound easier. And the main aim is coming up like a decent, we call it decentralized and democratized healthcare, like imaging outside of the hospital settings. The main idea is can we use this AI-guided platform so that we can collect data at healthcare facilities, pharmacies, care centers, and also like remote areas. So you have to bring ultrasound from an expert's hands to a novice user's hands so that everybody can collect it. So the AI platform is basically guiding the data collection, so guiding the novice user how to align the ultrasound transducer, and then how to move it, because that's one of the like the amazing thing with ultrasound is basically the data collection can be done anywhere, right? So if these new point of ultrasound devices, but one of the disadvantages is it's a manual data collection process. So the, there is an operator that uses transducer compared to CT or MRI where you insert the patient to the imaging device, right? So that has is disadvantages because then if you're not orienting the transducer to a correct scan plane, the image quality decreases. And then what you collect is basically low-quality ultrasound data that, that affects the subsequent diagnostics or whatever you want to do, even with your AI platform. So the AI developing is basically guiding them. And then the other thing is extracting features using AI that assesses the risk. We didn't want to do diagnostics out of the hospital because that usually becomes more challenging. And if you want to get an FDA approval Anytime we mentioned diagnostics, you have to go through different loops. So what we wanted to do is the risk assessment, assessing the risk of lung disease, for example, assessing the risk of liver disease. There's different projects we are interested in. And yeah, the way I see it, though, so I was always involved in academic side, right? So I knew that was like, I wanted to do something because I, I have some friends who started their startup companies while I finished my PhD. And they were very successful as well, but I was never on like a, on a business mentality. My mentality is academic, right? So, But then my brother was involved in different startups, so we kind of connected. We were talking when I was visiting once Istanbul, and we were like, oh, we should do this. And I'm like, yes, we should. These are the ideas I have, but I'm like, I don't have like a bandwidth to do it. And then he started the whole process. So now it's going well. We got some very... It's a very early startup, though. We're not really... We haven't raised, we've just raised a little bit of initial seed funding, which excites us. And then uh, the other thing as part of that is basically these focus devices are, we want to basically move into a a global healthcare, right? So it's just basically move it to Africa. And for those projects, it will be more like a pregnancy risk assessment or, or again, lung disease risk assessment for children. So yeah, it's an interesting switch. I would say there's different things like you have to present your, your company or your research or your re- direction that the company is going to, to, to investors and then get their attention. So that part was interesting. And then all, obviously you get like, you talk to a lot of people like you just like, not everybody will support your project. Sometimes our, our company was too small. And for so some of them, I was mostly it was like, oh, you're too early stage. We are supporting more late stage funding. It's an interesting, I mean, you learn a lot that you haven't really had time to, to learn, like what does like seed investment mean what can i do with that or what is the valuation of the company all that stuff like the, the finance or the business side so um, but it's an interesting journey and i'm still happy that i'm connected to to academia as well so yeah
0: That's really wonderful. I guess, yeah, I I mean, what a wonderful story, of course, that the Mm -hmm. two brothers started the (laughs) company. I'm sure the parents are happy and proud.
1: (laughs) Oh, man, like if he told us that we're going to start a company uh, when we were 13, no. (laughs) Because it was always just like
0: fights. (laughs) But you guys are somewhere like connecting back after let's say growing up. That's a wonderful part. But i guess also it was really interesting that how you thought of the actual problem itself and then where you can add value so if i try like try to summarize just to understand the, the basic ideas of your approach it's just that it's possible to use ultrasound with rather unskilled professionals but still they have to know how to properly use it so that the images are of certain value for at least risk assessment. Now, what you are doing, you are trying to provide that support in terms of how they should capture the images. And along with it, you have all these artificial intelligence models that are supporting the basic risk assessment of whether this person is such a bad condition that he or she should immediately be uh, transferred to a a tertiary care center, or they can be delayed or so that the normal procedure can happen. And this you are doing for the global health simply because the people outside the developed world has little access to care, but they do have access to technology such as networks. The neural, but the actual networks through yeah. which you can update the data to clouds, etc. But also the the ultrasound is cheap and that's affordable, and you can bring it anywhere, more or less that you wish to. Roughly, that's where the value lies. If, please tell me if I didn't understand it correctly. But that's no. what I the summary.
1: Yeah, that is very correct. And then the the other thing we are also interested in, like what are the applications that still haven't been addressed, like Let's say we didn't want to go to, because ultrasound has been used in like prostate cancer, breast cancer, right? Thyroid cancer. So we wanted to find applications that were not really investigated. And but still there's a need for that, right? So that's, those are the diseases that we, we're focusing on. The other thing, you're totally right. Just like even like, so under the world countries or even like in US, there's people like associate hospitals with severe traumatic accidents, right? You don't go to the hospital unless you get have to have a surgery, right? Or right now it's the like, extreme level of COVID. But then that's why when they want to see the doctor, it goes to the last stage of the disease. They see the doctor and they have a cancer. They see the doctor, they have some disease, right? So what we want to do is it's like, okay, can we just like put this in a pharmacy or while they're going getting their, I don't know, pop or like their water, can they get an ultrasound scan at the pharmacy from a pharmacist and then they can connect that with the doctor or someone like experienced. And then if there's a risk there, then they can tell them, look, we have a high risk of liver disease. We should technically go talk to your doctor or or, or go to the hospital, like they make an appointment. And there's a lot of that happening in like certain communities in U.S. as well as in Africa as well. Like one of the collaborations we had, like one of my PhD students, he was an excellent student and he moved back to Uganda, joined Makaria University. So we're just talking to them and then they mentioned us like some of the remote areas in the villages that don't come to the hospital until it's too late. Prostate cancer, for example. So and they trust village, they call them village healthcare workers. So they trust them because they basically know the people. And a lot of communities, it's a trust-based thing. If they know the person, they will basically let them to, I don't know, to to look at their lungs, for example, to look at if anything is wrong with them. So for that, why don't we just basically get ultrasound? What can, you can collect data with ultrasound. Why not use it? You can collect, you, right now you're collecting data with these smart devices, right? So if you can incorporate that, ultrasound and why not do it? And hopefully in the future, the way I see it, like every year, just the expenses of focus devices are going down. So maybe we will reach at the level that once one in the future when we're buying our cell phone, we're gonna buy or the comp- cell phone companies are gonna just give us, oh, why don't you have this headset and plus the ultrasound transducer with you? So and people are interested in that. They want to control their health more right now with all this available Smart watches, for example, they're monitoring their, yeah, how many steps I did, what's my heart rate, what else can I... And all this the, the additional information you give them, they are, they get used to it and they co- start collecting it. So why not incorporate something, imaging-based solution as well to that? So that's um, I think that's how we're thinking. And it's, just, it's not like we're going to solve all this, but there's a lot of companies who are basically doing similar things. Hopefully combining all this, we can push the health in the world to a better place, especially for regions, as you mentioned as well, like underdeveloped countries or where regions where they don't have access to a big hospital care. Yeah. So that, I mean, that's the idea. And again, it's a very exciting project.
0: Yeah. This is really a wonderful point that you made that basically somehow taking the care outside of the hospital. So that first of all, the sort of mental block that people have about hospitals that they don't have in their more natural surroundings. Of course, also the fact that if you're just thinking about the care homes, then it's a massive logistic issue to bring these really old people from care home to the hospital and back for routine checkup, routine screening. So if some of these can be done back at where they are, that significantly makes, let's say, the job easier and makes healthcare more efficient. I was also very interested when you were talking about the lungs and taking the ultrasound of lung to to detect lung diseases, because one case that I know from my country, India, where TB is endemic to India, right? Tuberculosis. That means that If you think about the way tuberculosis is diagnosed in India, it's through the sputum test, but India still being on the really, let's say, early level of developing it far from the developed world. So if you are not in one of the major urban centers, bringing the sputum from the patient to the actual testing center, that's that's really a major logistical issue but we can always think of the equivalent thing that if we have like it doesn't matter which part of india you are going you have a internet connection you have your uh, mobile phone network so doing an ultrasound point of care ultrasound and that getting that information up and getting information back that would make the entire logistic so much simpler. So I'm sure there are many such examples, but I'm really looking forward to see how much value you can add to the global health. This is really a wonderful.
1: No, I know. I'm I'm very excited about the global health aspect. We always like as researchers at Mikai. There's a lot of focus on like how we can make the current system better, right? So I think, and um, maybe we will have a global health section in the future for Mikai where we see some papers being submitted. <laughs>
0: Yes, I mean I'm I'm happy that finally in the Mikai there is a little bit of a discussion about clinical stuff, but I mean, also it's like the reviewers are becoming a little bit more let's say open to the possibility that it's not just technical important. The technical should be more of like embedded in the clinical question and not the other way around.
1: Exactly. I totally agree. I was very happy to see the Clinikai part and then they are continuing that. And then the RSNA involvement with Mikai or Mikai's involvement with RSNA is another step forward, I think is. I think Mikai community is growing and then becoming more open to new initiatives. So I'm I'm very happy to see that.
0: Absolutely. So I guess one quick question I had around the stake and the technology you are developing, I guess AI plays a rather core role there. Mm-hmm. So can you give us some examples of like what type of value AI is adding in that entire pipeline that you are building?
1: Yeah. So one of them is the navigation aspect, right? So how we can move the transducer to a location. The second thing is like, how can we, because ultrasound data, even if you go to the hospital and clinicians, like expert ultrasound users, it's like, it's a qualitative assessment, right? Right. So you look at the ultrasound data and you see, all oh, there's this like tissue change. It might be fatty liver disease, right? And usually you see these tissue changes at a later stage of the disease, right? When the disease is already as progressed, because then you can see that the tissue differentiation between a healthy person and a late stage disease person. So what we're hoping to achieve or what we're planning to achieve is like, can we detect these tissue changes at an earlier stage where it's not really visible to the human eye, even if for an expert user, right? So how can we can we incorporate AI into that and then show them that basically this person show them the new features we extract from AI and then if they and then tell them this person has a high risk of late stage disease, liver disease devil or lung disease So that's I think AI has an added value on that, basically giving the clinician more information that is not really visible to the naked eye, when you look at the ultrasound data. And this, again, especially with ultrasound, it's very subjective as well. It's just like, okay, there's some certain features everybody agrees on, but then there's certain features. It's just like, it's it's very, the agreement is broad, right? So can we extract new features that's going to basically decrease that agreement? And then the inter and intra user variabilities will be lower, right? So I, I see an AI has an added value of that and yeah those are the two things i guess so like navigation is part of that and then bringing extracting new features that are not visible to the naked eye i think is, is another feature that ai plays a good role in it but again ultrasound as i mentioned is very challenging so you can train your ai collected with a data set from like an expert user and then when you move to the novice user the domain change happens, right? That the student, you know, you're investigated in that, you research a lot. So that's how we can deal with that. So if that's the way I feel is like incorporating AI into that acquisition and data collection process could reduce that because you can basically extract or collect data with similar features. And the other thing is like, again, doing some domain shift AI methods or, yeah. or test time adaptation methods during that rather than retraining. The other thing we're also interested in is basically using AI, how we can basically reduce the complexity of the networks, right? We're not really doing diagnostics, as I mentioned earlier. So we don't really need that high accuracy. Like risk assessment, okay, 90% or 80% you're on the high risk group, 80% you're in the mid-risk group. So, And then the question raises, so can we develop AI networks that are smaller, but still by not giving the accuracy up too much? Right. So because you want to eventually you want to run it in a mobile platform, so you cannot really have two deep networks to train. So that's another added value I see that AI can can handle as well. Yeah,
0: Yeah, that's really wonderful. So I guess you you have these sort of many different aspects to make sure that the images are more or less standardized. Then you have a, a like sort of making the invisible more prominent to help the decision process to actually reduce the inter and intra-observer variability with some uncertainty modeling and then also trying to make sure even the image quality itself is somewhat more standardized so that these domain gaps are low and the AI can There you have so many, I guess, exciting, yet very difficult, especially for the modality ultrasound that you have to deal with I'm, I'm really looking forward to see how the technology develops. This is really exciting, but a challenging problem.
1: Hopefully, hopefully we'll get there.
0: <laughs> so yeah, I mean, but I guess the one thing that is uh, sort of different from Pond State to the other research of yours that I, at least I personally am more familiar with is the focus of ultrasound guided needle insertion. So I have seen multiple walks of yours where you have focused on these different needle insertion and the different, let's say, clinical challenges, technical challenges, and how we can use AI deep learning to solve that. But before we talk about those challenges, can you give us a little bit of an insight of why clinicians don't just jab needles like they do for our COVID-19 shots? Why do they need ultrasound <laughs> guidance?
1: No, that's a great question. So what they want to see is like ultrasound provides them the anatomy, right? So you, you, let's say you want to collect like a biopsy from liver and then they use ultrasound to see where the liver is and then inside the liver, if they can differentiate oh, now this region looks more like there's something happening here. I want to collect this biopsy sample from here. The other thing they need that is like, say they have, let's say, CT scan of the patient. They know exactly where the the cancerous tissue is approximately. But then during the needle insertion, so you don't have that in front of you. So you need something that provides your real-time feedback during biopsy, right? So they, before that, they they just basically use ultrasound. So to kind of like give them like a visual feedback, it's kind of navigation, right? So where where am I in the anatomy right now? I know there's cancer from the pre-op CT or like pre-procedure CT scan. Now I want to insert the needle and collect the sample from there, right? so that I know the sample that I'm collecting is kind of the region where I think there's a cancer tissue and not collected from a different tissue. That's one of the biopsies, one of them. And there is also another project I was involved in was epidural pain management. You're inserting an epidural needle to the epidural space space and injecting the drug. So you need to make sure that the needle is inserted in the correct location. So for that, again, you use ultrasound. Mostly ultrasound is used to give like a visual feedback to the clinicians. Tell them where they are exactly in the anatomy, so that they can either inject the drug or collect the the tissue sample. But it's a challenging procedure, depending on the application area. Yeah. And I can talk more about it if you. Yes, that, um, that's probably the awesome next question.
0: <laughs> yeah, so I, I guess like for our listeners to understand it is that if the goal is to just insert at a rough target and push an injection in then it's totally fine to not yep. need further visual navigation. But if the idea here is that you are trying to reach somewhere a certain type of tissue that you can't just, let's say, do palpation and get an understanding, you have to have some visual feedback which is not there because you don't have any direct line of sight. So you use ultrasound along with it, your needle insertion to see whether you are actually going closer to those tissues, which you are hoping to fix.
1: Yeah, uh, that's correct. Yeah.
0: So I guess the clinical motivation is clear of why you need ultrasound-guided needle insertion. Can you tell us a little bit about the main challenges of this procedure?
1: Yeah, that's, that's a nice question as well. So the main challenge is, so if you insert the needle perpendicular to an ultrasound beam, or some transducer, everything, because needles are specular, right? So the heart tissues, all the signal bounces back. Then you have this like, beautiful n- needle visibility, which is like high intensity line like objects. And then at the end of that high intensity line like object is the needle tip. So you, then you know where the needle tip is. So the clinician has to know where the needle tip is, because eventually that's the location where you're collecting the biopsy sample, or that's the location where you're injecting the drug, right? But then most of the time we're doing in the clinic, the needle is inserted with an angle. The more steeper that angle and the more deeper you go into the tissue, the visibility is lost. So you don't really see. All you see is there's a tissue motion because of the needle insertion, but you don't really know where exactly is the needle. And then that results in a lot of multiple attempts. They, they sometimes insert the needle, take the needle out, insert it back, so that they don't really lose the visibility. I was involved actually in a liver biopsy procedure at Rutgers, It took 45 minutes to collect like a couple samples, 45 minutes because the clinician and this guy is like, the clinician was the head of the radiology department. He has done it multiple times, but there are certain cases like that one. It took him 45 minutes and the patient is laying there. There's like time lost. He could have gone to a different procedure. He couldn't because he couldn't, he wasn't sure where he's collecting the sample. So that, that, that was, that's one of the things we're trying to solve. Like, can we show them where the needle tip is, right? And then, and then, using AI and then and then basically decrease the 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 times the needle inserted, decrease the procedure time, and then and then make sure they're collecting the tissue sample, the needle tissue sample from a correct location.
0: Yes, this is really a very, I guess, technically challenging thing to understand for those who are not quite familiar with how the ultrasound images are acquired. But you are basically looking at this sort of fan beam sort of images where the closer the tissues are to the ultrasound probe, those, those are the things that show up at the top of the screen. Whereas those which are further away are at the bottom, and then you are trying to insert. And then, most likely, the bad angle of insertion is with respect to the probe, the more difficult it is to see things. Yeah. Yeah. What you are again trying to do, you are somehow again trying to do the AI magic to make uh-huh. the invisible more visible. Yeah. So then, then the basic question really is that because it's Mikhai, so all of us are interested to know what are those AI magics that you do. So can you give us some technical hooks that you found useful in bringing AI for this type of procedure? Yeah.
1: No, that's a great question. So what we try to do is, so uh, we we use a couple of things. So one of the things we, we looked into is basically the tissue, there's a tissue motion when you're inserting a needle because of the insertion of the needle. And then the tissue moves more closer to the needle tip. So the, the tissue basically away from the needle tip, there's less and less motion if you go away from the needle tip, right? That's basically a constant thing. So it never changes. So anytime you keep inserting needle, the tissue around the needle or needle tip moves more compared to the tissue away from the needle tip. So then we were just basically, the idea came from the, so I was so you can assume that if you were to assume the needle tip as a foreground object, and then the, any, any region away from the needle tip as a background object. Then the question was like, because in Mikai, it's like AI is like more, the dominant field is computer vision, right? So that's basically where it's used. So I was like, oh, can we use like a background subtraction? That's a simple way to use it. Like Because they use that in, in to monitor, I don't know, a train station. There's a constant background image that you have. And then anytime the, the, the people coming into the train station, that's going to be the foreground object yeah. and the people move around. So we can assume that a similar idea. So the further away for you you are from the needle, that's the background. The closer you are to the needle, that's the foreground. So we designed, uh, this was like a traditional image processing method, basically like a simple way to extract it. explain is like background subtraction. So we modeled the tissue motion around the needle tip and away from the needle tip. So the tissue moves more. So we end up with enhanced images where there is basically high probability of the pixels that we assign to the close to the needle tip and then away from the needle tip, there's a low probability, right? So we have that image. With AI, the more data you have, the better it gets, right? So that's our one image. We have the original BMOD ultrasound image where you also use, and then we basically input that to a localization AI method. So it localizes the needle tip and then basically using it inside that localized region, we go back to the enhanced image and then calculate the highest probability pixel that corresponds to the needle. Tip. So that was the one thing I liked there is basically the combination of a traditional image analysis method with a deep learning method or AI method. So that gave us pretty good results and we were happy, very happy about it. And you can, again, you can expand that. So there's the foreground subsection or tissue motion is similar to optical flow, right? So there's like AI networks that investigate that. That's the next step as well. I would like to look into it. But it's a challenging process, and we're not we're still not done yet. so the, all the needles that we investigated are biopsy needles that are used for like deep, deeper regions like liver biopsy, which mostly there is no bending in the needle. So the next question is what if the needle bends right so then that's basically the you have to come up with a more improved version of tissue motion calculation. and then again, we have to evaluate that on on clinical data. We just collected a couple of data sets which the results are very promising, but it requires like an extensive evolution. That's, that's the next step that we would like to see. And then uh, again, that was when we submitted the last, I think it was last year's IPCAI. And that was the general feedback as well from our reviewers. Like it's a very good method, very promising, but we want to see a clinical adaptation of this. And um, that's the next step. It's always like, I think a lot of Mikai people or Kai people will know that more. Like if you do stuff in your lab and then you move on to the clinic, there's always just like this additional questions you have to solve, right? So it's not like a direct adaptation of whatever you do in the, in, at the lab will work. And I think that's another thing I would like to mention to the, to the I guess, PhD students, mostly or master students, like don't get discouraged by that. So that's not an easy process. If it was an easy process, there will be like, AI will dominate our clinical field, right? So there's always like, there will be challenges to overcome. Once you overcome those challenges, you feel more happier and it just basically that's life as well, overcome oh, challenges. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, that's that's really a wonderful advice. I, I mean, clinical translation on its own is a big, big topic, right? I mean, so that's not surprising, especially when we are talking about such procedures where there is a direct contact with the patient. It's not like images are taken before and you are doing analysis, but it's happening then and there. It's somehow in a way for at least for me, should be so difficult, so that all those who are really just mucking around, they should be just dropped out by the process itself, and that makes total sense. I, I guess the first part where you are talking about this insertion of the tool or of the needle, and there you have the most of the motion. So that was really quite fascinating and interesting because it makes sense from an intuitive perspective why there will be a lot of motion there. I was just wondering, okay, so first, first of all, I have never walked on ultrasound, so that's a quick disclaimer. I have zero idea of ultrasound, whatever I would say is from a very, let's say, from the cloud looking down perspective, and I might be totally wrong. But I can just imagine there are two other types of, at least, at least two other types of motions that could happen. So one probably could be from the breathing motion, if you are close to like liver, for example. The other motion itself is just that how hardly they push the ultrasound probe and that also somewhat bends the soft tissues that is underneath it. So did you see any way of like, because these are so difficult to model, so any way to model these, or these were not really very relevant when we are looking at the actual motion of the tool because the tool was so highly moving things around?
1: Well, that's an excellent question. I think, so this question was raised as well. Let's say, what if the organ moves, right? Like, as you said, if you're inserting a surgical tooth or inside a heart, can you use that? Because the heart is a moving tissue as well. And then again, the, another thing that you touched upon is very important, and not a lot of people look into it, like say the probe pressure. If you pressure the probe to the skin surface, that the tough tissue is going to deform. How is that going to affect the needle insertion process? So those are the questions. We investigated the first one the organ motion. So what we did is like during the data collection, we collected scans where we really pressed the ultrasound transducer to the skin surface so we can deform the tissue while we insert the needle. So what we found is basically the needle insertion speed and the deformation around the tissue differs from the one where the tissue deforms around or away from the needle. So that kind of helped us to, to basically... Get rid of the tissue motion that's away from the needle. So, but then, I mean, that was one of the things the data collected that basically introduced the tissue motion. But again, it's as I mentioned as well, it works on those data sets. But this data is collected in the lab, not from a real patient, so it's controlled as well. The next step is again, it's going to be uh, collecting clinical data where there's tissue motion for, I would say, for liver biopsy procedures, which was our target application and epidural insertion as well, that's like the tissue motion is very small in those instances. So I'm guessing it will, I hope it works in that. But again, it's we have to evaluate it on different clinical applications. And then again, it's like it will be very interesting to see how it works. But then, like the other thing, like when you collect data in the lab, you try to mimic the clinical environment as much as possible, right? So that's we did like by collecting data where we really press the transducer, which is basically normally a clinician wouldn't use it like that, just to introduce like drastic deformations to the tissue. And it works on those because the movement of the needle, the speed of the needle insertion kind of like makes a difference to the deformation introduced to the tissue by the, by the transducer. But again, I love ultrasound, but I it guess it's so challenging with <laughs> data collection. And the other thing I need to mention with this procedure, the processing has to be real-time. Right. So if you're visualizing the needle tip, it has to be a real time because you cannot wait 10 minutes for the algorithm to finish running. Yeah,
0: of course. Yeah, I mean, this is yeah. really one good point that you have made. That it's making sense. I, I totally understand that the motion characteristics would probably be so different based on the application that for most of the applications, it's probably good enough to just cancel those motion characteristics. Of course, the translational aspects you already touched before you touched again. So I will basically move to the translational question, but through your journey. So you sure. have been doing these sort of ultrasound research, ultrasound guided surgery, needle insertion for your PhD, postdoc as a professor, and now you are bringing that some of these technologies into the industry where things would actually be out there in the open wild, open clinical wild. So, many Mika researchers I know for a fact are very anxious about this transition. So, from your experience so far, what are the, let's say, three things that you liked and three things that you disliked?
1: One thing I like and dislike, everything mm-hmm. moves very fast. So you don't have time to do experiments that's going to take you a couple months. So that is good. Like, it's a good, it's a product, right? So it's just like, it moves fast. You need to finish the product. And the other thing I like is basically, you see the, I mean, it doesn't happen right away, but then you see the end product being applied for data collection and evaluation right away. Most of the time, like academic research is like bits and pieces. You do one piece, it stays there. You hire another PhD student that does the other thing. You hire master master's student in between those PhD students that does little things. And then the pieces are around there, but they're never connected. <laughs> that part gets me very excited. Oh, we, yeah, we are working to a product that's going to be out there where we incorporate all the pieces, right? And the other thing I liked about, which is also in the one of the main differences, like if you're trying to push for a product, you the main thing you're focused on, is it going to work in the clinical application? you're not trying to outperform state of the art. So as long as it does what the clinician wants, then that's good enough. As long as it improves something that wasn't there, that's good enough. You don't have to outperform the state of the art for that sake. So I think that's also like, I've seen that in a lot of discussion topics as well. And then Mikai in the reviewer process, they specifically mentioned that it doesn't have to outperform state of the art, as long as it brings something new, that's like, I like that aspect uh, and that change that wasn't there in the previous review process during Mikai and especially for clinical applications. As long as I can show a, with certain certainty where the needle tip is, I don't have to outperform the state of the art because that's the, the clinical application is not the outperforming state of the art. The clinical application is collecting biopsy tissue sample from where I have to collect it with a certain accuracy. right? So. And as long as you're in that clinical margin, that is for a product, that is acceptable. You don't have to, let's say, for biopsy tissue collection, if you're under a millimeter, certain biopsy applications, that's, that's acceptable. You don't have to go, like push the accuracy to 0.1 millimeter. The more important thing you're involved, interested in is like, how can I evaluate that in more hospitals and a bit more patients? So that part, I, I like it a lot as well. But I'm still, again, I mean, if you're still in the in-between, like I have the, the translational aspect and I'm still in the academia. So pushing the boundaries for new AI networks and architectures, we still have to be involved in that. But if for a product, if you're focused on the product development, that's more pushing the product out there. Bring the product out, evaluate it so it reaches more like a wider audience. So that's that part I, I like as well. And it's the fast pace. You, you learn that. Other- as I said, like I'm, and like, so I'm coming from my academic background, I was never involved in business development and then talking with business people. So I learned new things during that process. So that's, that's interesting as well. But then the other thing, I, I also was talking, some of my friends who did their PhD, they, they joined like big research labs, right? So established research labs over there. Even if you're in the industry, the, the way they approach the research is similar, but one difference is it's a product driven research. So you need to have results. So you cannot really, as I said, like academic research is a more slow pace. So, um, so again, you can find, and there's also a lot of people I know who bounce back, back and forth because back in the day it was more rigid. That's how I feel. it At least like when I graduated from my PhD, you would either join academia or you go to industry and there's no back and forth. Now I see a lot of people who were in the industry then moved to the academia And then, or who are in the academia, they move to the industry. It happens a lot, especially in the healthcare domain. And that's why I like being involved in healthcare research as well.
0: That's wonderful. I guess there are lots of good things that those who are more into the academic side of things can expect. Of course, it's a fast paced environment, but it's also probably good to realize a big, let's say, product rather than, let's say, focusing on an island solution and beating the others by burning the tpu hours in terms of I either the point to die so that we get another mikhail paper so that after a certain point might feel a little bit like okay what am i doing why am i doing it what what is the real vision behind it so from moving from academia to at least in the health tech industry if you are staying there that gives you a chance to actually realize the product i guess that's that's the biggest thing that you can hope for. Of course, the other side is that it's probably won't be the as rigorous and as time consuming and as I, I guess sort of rewarding if you like that kind of reward in terms of doing the thorough process of every validation nook and cranny imaginable. So I guess one sort of supporting question to ask is that how does the personality trait matters there? Like, is there a difference between an uh, extrovert and an introvert of would be more successful in the industrial side of health tech?
1: Uh, I don't really see it. There's a lot of like opportunities for everybody in the industry side. There's like basically if you want to be in a research lab setting, you, there's still like a settings for that, and or if you want, if you're more interested in in talking with the clinicians. And making presentations about the product, connecting with more people. There's opportunities for that too. And right now we're in an era that's basically there's opportunities for everybody. So I wouldn't really discourage people if you're an extrovert or introvert, or if you're worried about oh am I going to be successful? No, there's we need people like even in the industry like they all like they like to sit in there. Office space or in the research lab, they still work for the product. But we also need, if you want to be involved and in like, oh, I want to present this our product to venture capitalists, or like I want to present our product to at RSNA. There's also opportunities for that. So uh, if you want to do it, there's there's opportunities for everybody. So I, I would strongly strongly like encourage anybody if you want to try the industry, just go try. One thing is what I learned from my experience as well is like, you try it. If you don't like it, at least you have an idea that you don't like it. Without doing that, you will always have that question. What if I try, right? So, and that's going to bother you. You're not going to sleep good anymore because that question is always going to be there. So try to avoid that. And then your sleep will be, will be better. So try it and then, and then experience it.
0: Absolutely. You try so that you don't have any regrets when you yeah, are going to bed. It. It's a wonderful thing. And I think it's it's very important for our young Mikai researchers to also know that there is a place for everyone in, in the yeah. industry, health tech industry. Yeah. It doesn't matter whether you're an extrovert or an introvert in nature. I guess we are toward the end of our uh, session um i and it's also sort of tradition we come to this question back to back again and this is really more of a vision question so imagine the next five years where you don't have to worry about i don't know making presentation to venture capitalists or having these deadlines of writing proposals Mikai deadline for papers etc cetera, etc cetera, and you have a group of people around you and you can focus on one research question or translational question of your choice what would that be
1: yeah that's a great question i think global health will be on the top of my list because i really want to go to these countries and then not just like start the technology but i want to talk to the people i want to go to the villages and then and then talk with the people and then and then see what kind of problems they have in terms of healthcare and then try to build a product. Hopefully, if I can incorporate ultrasound or point of care ultrasound into that, that would be great. Or come up with something very simple as well. Like it can be something different where your engineering background skill set will provide a solution to that problem. If I, yeah, that will be on the top of my list. I guess I really want to connect with more people from underdrunk developed countries to solve their healthcare problems. And yeah, I think that will be amazing like, to see because it amazes me anytime I talk with these people, it just, it's, it's there. They're so happy. And then even if they're basically have a lot of healthcare problems, they're happy, but then they need the healthcare. So that's why I think making healthcare more accessible and easily accessible as well and cheaper. I think that will be the ultimate thing that I would work for if I didn't have any, any deadliner developed, any grant applications or any, no more presentations to do it. Just travel the world and then try to bring healthcare to everywhere. The other thing I want to connect to that is like, so Mikai is going to be in Africa, right? So in, in, in the future. So I think that's an amazing, excellent initiative. We should, again, like plan or Mikai committee should plan to move it to, I want to have a Mikai in India. I want to have a Mikai in somewhere. I mean, we had like South America, but then COVID happened. So hopefully we will reach out to different regions in the world and connect with while we're doing that, while that happens. I think the other thing you should do is connect with the local community. And start some new initiatives, you know, just like uh, I don't know, exchange student programs or or start some new collaborations with the local hospitals while we are in the conferences there. So it shouldn't be just having the conference there, but like building local connections. I think is important as well. Hopefully, hopefully we can we can aim that and achieve that in the future as well.
0: Yeah, that's really a wonderful vision that you have. I, I talked to several people. One of the earlier episodes was with Dr. Saif Afat, who was a radiologist and also mentioned that actually probably a lot of value that AI can add is to the global healthcare because it's not about how good this network is in comparison to that in terms of performance. It's about bringing access to healthcare for those who do not have access to. That's a significantly big drawback. I, I mean, last week I, we also saw a keynote where I think the, the keynote speaker was talking about the children's health and bringing computer vision techniques to detect growth-related diseases that children have and bringing that to the community where there are no such pediatricians with a particular training is available. So, So that's really a wonderful, I mean, yours align very well with that Mindset. And I guess that's a big, big, let's say, decade coming up where the technology will finally ensure that the global health is actually achieving the access standard so that it, it's becoming more inclusive. And I guess I'm sure Mikai has a big role to play there. Mikai in Africa, yes, for sure, but why not Mikai in India or Mikai somewhere else? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, on that wonderful new, I guess, brave world that's coming along for Digital Health. I wish you all the best. Hikar for the wonderful success you have with your new position plus the new startup that you have. And yeah, thank you so much for being here. Really enjoyed the one hour conversation with you.
1: Thank you, Anurban. This was amazing. And again, um, I was already like, listening to your podcast and what you started here is I think it's amazing. And the good thing is the way I see it is like we're connecting at a more personal level as well with all these stories that everyone is telling. So I learned a lot about the other people from, I knew already their academic background, but like, it's also good to connect uh, on a personal level. And I think then when we see each other at the MAKAI meetings, then it's like, and I feel like this is going to make collaborations easier, communications easier as well. So it's basically becoming more like a, The community. So thank you for starting this initiative and then having me on your podcast.
0: Thank you so much. Yeah, it's really wonderful you mentioned that, Ilkar, because it's like that was exactly my point, that communities build on stories. And as Mikai, I felt like we were somehow missing those stories. So now we know the background stories every time you meet your colleagues back there (laughs) and how the journey was. So yeah, really looking forward to conversations so where we have a little bit more personal touch to that and sure. thank you and we have a wonderful wonderful day ahead
1: ciao, thank ciao. You, take care